Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 10, Baptize Me. Today I will be interviewing Gene Cook Jr., host of the Narrow Mind radio show on the topic of baptismal regeneration. As I explained in episode 2, this view, held by Roman Catholics and the Churches of Christ, among others, holds that water baptism is a prerequisite for salvation. I explained in that episode and in episode 4 why I believe the Bible militates against that view, and Mr. Cook has graciously offered to explain for us why he too believes that to be the case. Now, I want to keep the intro material to a minimum, as I suspect this interview is going to be a long one. And I don't want to make this episode any longer than it needs to be. So, I just want to follow up briefly to episode 2, in which I explained why I didn't think at the time that Justin Martyr in the middle of the 2nd century, or Irenaeus in the 3rd, were speaking of water baptism as being the point of regeneration, as is claimed by many proponents of this view. A guest at my blog, however, persuaded me that I was probably wrong, and that it is indeed very likely that those church fathers were teaching that view. I'm not going to mention this guest by name, but if you're listening, you know who you are, and I want you to know that I appreciate your correction. That having been said, though, the fathers prior to Justin Martyr cannot be shown to have taught this doctrine, and and neither do I believe the Bible can be. And so I'm still convinced that this doctrine was developed after the New Testament era. Why, one might ask, would this have happened? Well, for one, we are fallen humans, and inherently desire to justify ourselves. So any works-based scheme of salvation is appealing to us. For two, new believers in the New Testament often did submit to water baptism immediately following saving faith, and I suspect the sign was soon confused with the thing signified. And I think there are other reasons as well, but, you know, in any case, as I explained in episode 7, the Bible contains the inerrant words of God breathed out onto the pages of Scripture through men whom he inspired to write precisely what they wrote. So the Bible, not tradition, is the authority against which I test this and any other teaching. Now, I want to play a promo for a show I was turned on to when Dee Dee Warren likewise played it in hers. Hi, I'm John Harden, host of the Whole Truth Podcast. We invite you to tune in and listen as my co-host John Kirkendall and I discuss and sometimes debate controversial topics from a Christian perspective in an open dialogue format. We also offer several ways for our listeners to get involved, so this is a podcast you can be a part of. Visit us on the web at thewholetruthpodcast.com or search for The Whole Truth at iTunes, the Zoom Marketplace, or other directory. And be sure to subscribe. I've only listened to one full episode of this podcast, but I've liked what I've heard, and based on the summaries of the other podca- uh, other episodes, I think that they're teaching a sound, so I would check them out. And with that, let's move into today's interview. I'm joined today by my guest, Gene Cook, Jr., host of the Narrow Mind Radio Show. Thanks for joining me today, Gene. My pleasure to be here. Let me begin by asking the question that's most pressing on me. How is Torque doing after his encounter with the snake? <laughs> Torque has made a full recovery. And for those that might not know who Torque is, Torque is my 71-pound uh, 
Blue Nose American Pit Bull Terrier who has been training to do weight pull since he was about uh, three months old. So he's a tough dog, and he made a, a full recovery. That's awesome. I was uh, really glad to see the pictures on Facebook after hearing about how badly he was bitten. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> praise God. Um, now, one of the things I really enjoy about getting to know new Christians, or, or well, Christians new to me, is hearing their testimony. Uh, at the bio at your show's website, it says that you were saved when you were about 26 year, years old. What's the story there? What prompted this change? Well, uh, I found myself at age 26 living with my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and we had a child together. And this was my second, I was on the verge of my second failed family relationship. Uh, I got married to my high school sweetheart right out of high school. It didn't work out. After a couple of years, I was divorced and had two kids from that marriage. And, and really nothing had changed in my life. And so I was kind of just repeating the same cycle of sin that oh. I had, that, that I had done the first time around. And during that whole time frame, there was a, a pastor who had been witnessing to me. I'd, I'd actually worked with him. His name is Milton Chambers. He is very influential. I asked him a lot of questions. I was, I was always trying to stump him because I was one of these guys that couldn't believe that Christianity was for real. Hmm. That the Bible was actually God's word. Uh, so he gave me some really good answers and got me thinking. So, one, I, I reached this point in my life, and this was back in uh, December of 1991, and, and uh, my uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Grace, basically looked me in the eye and said, you're a loser, and I'm out here. <laughs> she said a lot more than that, <laughs> but uh, it, was, it, was, it was strange because for the first time, everything that she was saying to me, I was actually agreeing with. Mm. She was right. I, I didn't have a job. I just cared about myself. I was very self-centered. Uh, I was a womanizer. I was into working out and getting tan and playing vol- volleyball on the beach and uh, riding my mountain bike. That's that's about all my uh, my aspirations uh, included. So, and I was doing those things. And so that night, um, something changed. I-, I told Grace, which was really odd, really out of character for me. I was also. Um, a daily pot smoker. I would smoke marijuana two or three times a day on a regular basis. And I had been doing that for about six or seven years. So I told Grace that night, I said, you know what? I need to go to church. And she looked at me. She, she thought I was playing some type of cruel joke on her. She said, I said, I need to go to church. And she, uh, she said, fine, go to church. So I'm not going to church. She said, so I started going to church the following Sunday and, uh, have been in church since that day or since that week um every sunday with the exception of probably two sundays in the last uh i don't know how long has it been uh 20 years 21 years so that's uh, pretty much how it happened and then i i realized I, i'm one of these type a personality people that uh, once i get entrenched in something it's it's all or nothing <laughs> and so within six months within six months of of being saved i was actually um found myself teaching at Shadow Mountain Community Church uh, in the Sunday school program. So I'm not sure how wise that was on their part to put me there, but <laughs> uh, I was one of these guys that was able to grasp um, the Bible and, and doctrine and uh, just an overall worldview of Christianity in a very short amount of time. Right. Okay, well, well, fast forward a few years. In, in 2003, you began The Narrow Mind. Um, this is actually how I discovered you uh, when I interviewed Cy Ten Kate. He tuned me into your show. What's the story behind The Narrow Mind? What prompted you to create the show, and what's it all about? 
Well, actually, uh, this is going to sound funny, but um, the the inspiration that helped me start the Narrow Mind was um, an atheist by the name of Reginald Finley. <laughs> hmm. Because what happened was uh, um, I really got, I, I was listening to a lot of Christian radio, a lot of Christian radio, and I was calling into the local Christian talk show on a regular basis. Hmm. And I became friends with a guy named Rich Agazino who had a, a drive-time Christian radio talk show from 3 to 6 p.m. in the Los Angeles area. So he had a huge, and it would go all the way south to San Diego, all the way to across Tijuana, actually. So he had a huge coverage on that um, AM talk radio show. And so I got to be friends with him. He invited me to come sit in the studio, and, and then uh, there were a couple occasions when I actually filled in for him as a guest host when he was out. And I really loved doing radio. I really liked it. So... Uh, but it was very expensive. I thought about paying for my own show and all that, but typically it's about at least $250, dollars for one hour. Wow. So then, uh, in 2002, I came across this, this atheist who had this streaming radio show. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This, this fool, and I'm using that in the biblical sense. Sure. Well, yeah. <laughs> this fool is actually doing what I want to do and it's not really costing him anything. And he's got 500 people listening to his show. Amazing. Yeah. So um, I went out and bought the equipment and read up on how to do it and started doing uh, the show in March of 2003. I did it pretty consistently up until 2009. And then I, I've kind of taken a break. But as you know, the last, uh, the last two weeks I put out a show. So my plan at this particular stage, it being in the new studio and all that, is to put out a show on a weekly basis. So I'm, I'm a very busy person. I own my own business. Um, it's growing like crazy. And so I don't have a lot of spare time, but I need to make time to do, um, the narrow mind. So, uh, and not that, but the listeners, when I don't do it, they guilt me. They, they, <laughs> they send me all kinds of emails and, and tell me, um, you know, that, uh, I should be doing it. And, uh, and so, and my wife guilts me and all that. So I, I'm back doing it again and then hopefully on a regular basis from here going forward. Yeah. Well, just for the record, I wasn't one of those emailers, and uh, I do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be on my show. Um, now, the reason I asked you, and you know this, uh, the reason I asked if I could interview you was to talk about baptism. Uh, I've done a couple of episodes on the topic and have been debating it a, a lot. Um, I could probably be doing a better job. But when I read your bio, I was excited because I saw that this has been a topic of interest to you. Um, you've publicly debated baptismal regeneration at least a couple of times, uh, as well as infant baptism. Besides just, you know, a, a deep concern about the truth of, word of, of the Word of God, um, how did your interest in baptism begin? Was there an experience or series of experiences that you point to as being what caused you to begin to develop this interest, this passion? Yeah, I think so. What happened was, uh, back when I first became a Christian, there were uh, a few groups that I encountered early on, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and a group called the International Church of Christ. Hmm. And they were very active in San Diego. San Diego Church of Christ was huge. And they were promoting this idea that um, at, at baptism, you became a Christian and you received the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And anybody that wasn't baptized in their church uh, was not a true Christian. So I became interested in it. And then I took a class um, out at Shadow Mount. It was actually at the college there, Christian Community College on cults and we covered the um the, the church the international church of christ as one of the cults so 
I became very versed in it, and I realized that uh, the problem was is that most Christians really didn't understand the passages that these guys were bringing up as proof texts. And so it just took a little bit of time and energy to go out and, and, and look in the Bible to see what these passages actually meant with the, the overall context that we find in Scripture. And uh, it's really, I, I think it's easily refutable. Hmm. I, I think it's very refutable, and um, it's, it's not rocket science. A, a Christian, a, a brand-new Christian, if he, if he just kind of pays attention, including some of the things we're going to discuss uh, here shortly. Yeah. Uh, these there's a few there's just a handful of passages that they use as proof texts, and if you really understand what those passages mean, it becomes much easier to to understand the doctrine of baptism and just how wrong anybody is that asserts that salvation comes through water baptism. Right. Yeah, we will get to those in a minute. Um, but speaking of cults and your learning about the International Church of Christ, you wrote a book in 2002, which I'm waiting to receive in the mail. I can't wait to get my hands on it, uh, which you gave a really provocative and maybe controversial title. You called it the Baptism Cult. Tell me a little bit about this book and why you chose this title. I mean, some might think it's inappropriate or harsh. Was was the title, the choice of this title just to sort of drum up a bit of anger on their part? Yeah, I just wanted to upset them. <laughs> right. No, I, I mean, um, I, I like calling a spade a spade. Huh. And so, you know, if, if I think that you belong to a cult out of Christian love, I'm going to tell you that. Not in a, you know, a condescending manner that I'm, that I'm smarter than you are and somehow you got duped into believing a lie. That's not my approach at all. Uh, my approach is that, uh, we, if we don't recognize that we're saved by God's grace apart from ourselves, um, then we're not really, we haven't really placed our faith in Christianity or, or Jesus or the gospel. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's all of, all of, um, all of Christendom or I, and I use that term in quotes, uh, falls into two categories. Those who understand and believe and acknowledge that they're saved by the free gift of God apart from themselves and those that believe they have to do something to merit salvation. Hmm. And that those that don't do whatever they're saying you should do can't merit salvation. So, Really, Christianity broadly falls into those two categories. And when I say Christianity, I'm I'm including people that call themselves Christians that aren't actually Christians. So I'm using that term loosely. Sure. No, I understand. And, you know, if I might add, I, another reason why I think that I would categorize it as a cult is because I've noticed that they have a very, um, what I would say, unhealthy obsession with baptism. And the reason I say that is because, look, you and I believe that faith is a prerequisite for salvation uh, or, or that justification comes through faith. And yet we teach on a variety of subjects. We don't only teach about faith. And yet uh, it's been my experience that baptism is just about all that is ever preached in this group. Yeah, and you find this typical with cults. I mean, if you take a look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, you're going to find, what do they like to talk about? The Trinity. Talk about the Trinity, right? The fact that Jesus is a man. Right. And and that's what they're hung up on. And every cult does that. They take one, they take one particular aspect of Scripture to the exclusion of the rest of Scripture that would that would give you really a harmonized understanding of what this passage meant, and they build a platform e- either around this particular doctrine or around a particular personality. So that's how cults are born. Yeah. And then they just they 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 realize, and this is this is uh, something that they can go out and argue, and they can argue quite convincingly, and therefore it must be true. We yeah. even see this in in the cult, one of the newer cults. I, I would call them a newer cult, hyperpreterism. Yeah. So what they do is they, they emphasize a particular aspect of Scripture, and then they go out 
and uh, try to show that everybody really doesn't know what they're talking about. And they they do it uh, quite effectively. Yeah. Although most people have enough common sense to realize that something, a red flag goes up, something's not right about this. So, And that's I would say that's really the Holy Spirit giving us discernment, even when we may not have all the answers. Yeah, although definitely the more that we have... Um understood scripture you know the more that we've de- uh delved into scripture and understood everything that it has to say the more likely it is that we will have those red those red flags go off you know so i, I really care about not just focusing on one issue for that very reason now you know we, we could spend hours talking about baptism um indeed in in the debate that you had with bruce reeves it was i think eight, eight hours long across four days um you know we don't have that kind yeah, of I've actually had three of those debates I've, I've had three eight-hour debates with representatives from the Church of Christ. So I've actually got 24 hours on the books of debate, live, moderated, formal debate, uh, which I don't even know if I should be proud of that. Um, <laughs> that's just stupid. Well, it's, it's very edifying. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, I'd be interested, you know, I was able to find your debate with Bruce Reeves. Are your other debates on this topic available for download? They should be. They should be in the, in the I, I would assume that they're, Either on the narrow mind, um, in the narrow mind archive, uh-huh. uh, you have to sign up for a free user account, but they should be there for free, I would imagine. Um, or they, uh, you could probably find them on the Church of Christ website, I would imagine also. So there's three of them. I did one, uh, with a guy named David Brown, who's quite a character, and that's just flat out entertaining. And, uh, another one, I can't even remember this guy's name. He was actually the pastor of the Church of Christ in Chula Vista. Um, and the, I mean, these guys, they're, they're just, they, they're operating on the basis of ego and pride, hmm. ego and pride. So, um, it, it's really, you know, I, I suppose it's, it's good to, to try to expose and it's actually scriptural to try to expose. Um, but we have to be careful. I think that we don't run into the problem of giving them too much airtime to yeah. audiences. You know what I mean? Just because once we refute it, really, we have nothing more to talk about. You either have to, you either need to repent, or uh, you know go your own way. But these guys, I mean, this one guy, Bruce Reeves, wrote a book on it. Basically, took the tra- the transcription of the debate and published it, and sent me a copy. I got it in the mail. I threw it in the trash. I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm already done with this debate, dude. You were refuted. You were shut down. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's my. Uh, I'm trying to be funny. No, I know. I agree, though. I think that you did uh, refute him very well. Um, well, so maybe you could, uh, I mean, we'll give, we'll give links out, um, to your radio show and where they can sign up and all this at the end. But, um, j- just to delve into this issue from the beginning, well, how would you summarize the relationship between baptism and salvation as people like Bruce Reeves and David Brown, uh, as, as they understand it? And, and also, what, what groups besides maybe the International Churches of Christ would you say hold this view? Well, there is, uh, there's different views. I mean, there, for example, the International Church of Christ believes that you are actually regenerated and you possess the Holy Spirit when you are water baptized by them. Hmm. Okay. This particular branch of the Church of Christ, and it just depends on where you go and who you talk to, they don't even believe that Christians possess the Holy Spirit. Really? So they don't believe in regeneration. Wow. Um, they just believe that, that that's when you become a Christian. Um, and so... They're, they're extremely Pelagian, which is, um, really the, the, the fall of Adam had no effect on us. We're able to seek God in and of ourselves and know the, know the difference between good and evil and perform the good that we should do apart from the Spirit of God and apart from regeneration. So 
they're really whack, whacked out when it comes to what they believe. Um, there's another group called the uh, the Jesus Only Movement. Well, actually, is that what they're called? Um, Oneness yeah. Pentecostals? Yeah, Oneness Pentecostals that, that not only deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but also believe in uh, salvation through water baptism in, in the name of Jesus only. So there's different variations out there, um, but uh, you... Usually they, they have some commonality. But it, and the commonality is um, you got to do the, the magic prescription mm. uh, to be saved. And if right. you do X, Y, and Z, you're in. Right. Yeah. Well, so in contrast to that, what is the relationship between baptism and salvation as I think you and I both see it? Well, in the New Covenant, there are two sacraments. You have the Lord's Table, uh, which is communion. Uh, the, the cup and the bread, and then you have baptism. Both of those point to something that has already been a past reality. Hmm. You just take a look at communion. What is communion? Communion is us communing with God, communing with the body of Christ, uh, and, and recognizing, being obedient to, but also recognizing uh, uh, the, the death of Christ and the fact that we have been purchased by Christ with a price. Hmm. So there's a guy outside my studio right now mowing the lawn, so hopefully you won't hear the lawnmower too much. <laughs> what are the chances of that happening? So uh, I would say that uh, the same holds true for baptism. Baptism doesn't point to a present, uh, present tense action or uh, instance. It, it points to something that has already taken place. It doesn't even point to something that's going to be future, as some paedo-baptists would argue. Uh, but it points to a spiritual reality. It's it's a sign. For example, you're driving down the freeway, and there's a sign that says Main Street, the next exit. Well, the sign is not Main Street. The sign is pointing to Main Street. Right. That's what baptism is. It's a sign that points to something else. What is that something else that it points to? It points to the spiritual reality of the new birth, the indwelling presence, dying with Christ, being raised with Christ, and uh, just having our sins washed away, it points to all of those things, being united w- with Christ by the Spirit of God. So it's pointing to something that's already taken place. And really, nobody would really want to do that in their right mind um, unless they were just self-deceived if those things hadn't already happened to them. Hmm. Unless, of course, they were tricked into thinking that that would bring about salvation. Yeah. Now, I want to address a few of what I think are the strongest proof texts that these groups level against our view. But before we do, on a sort of fundamental level, why do you reject their view that baptism is a prerequisite for salvation? I mean, what sort of underlying or foundational principles shape how you approach the passages that we're going to look at? Well, all the way back from the beginning, you can go back to the Garden of of Eden. Uh, And what you're going to find is that as God introduces his covenant of grace... Um, it's always something that is initiated by God. And so I, I guess a, a fundamental presupposition uh, that I have from my reading of Scripture is that salvation is always something initiated by God. Mm. So we do things like baptism, for example, or believe. It's always a response to what God has already done <clears throat> in our lives. There's a, there's a, a very clear passage uh, that I like to go to in the book of Romans chapter 8. And... It speaks of of being in the flesh or being in the spirit. Now, let me just start by reading it to you, I guess. Um, It says in verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, 
could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, this is where it gets interesting because what Paul's going to do here is he's going to divide humanity into two different groups, those who are of the spirit and those who are of the flesh. Okay. And verse, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, usually at this point, somebody says, well, aren't you kind of making an assumption there? Person, the person that's being spoken of in the flesh is actually an unbeliever, and the person that is uh, being spoken of in the spirit is actually somebody who's been regenerated. Well, look at verse nine. You, whoever, are you who, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So right there, Paul makes the the clarification um, that there are two types of people, those who are living in the spirit and those who are living in the flesh. And the key phrase here is back in uh, verse 6. For to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Hmm. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what I like to do is I like to say, look, um, Mr. Baptism guy, all right, (laughs) do you think if you're going to tell me that you're saved at baptism, do you think that your baptism was something pleasing to God? And They'll always say yes. Sure. Absolutely. So are you saying that when you got down into the water and made the decision to be baptized, you were not a, you, you were not saved yet? Absolutely. Well, here it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you're actually doing things in the flesh that God says cannot be pleasing to him. Right. So you've got a problem there. So I would say that this is a real clear passage that talks about the need to be regenerated prior to doing anything uh, that is pleasing to God. Why? Because we have to do all of our, our all of our good works, all of our acts of worship, everything that God commands us to do. We have to do that through the mediation of Christ. And if it's not done through the mediation of Christ, it is not pleasing in God's sight. Yeah. And then also, I think, <clears throat> corresponding to this, I mean, Paul said that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works and that that faith is itself a gift from God, which corresponds to this, which is that the very faith that leads us to subject ourselves to the law of God and and please God is something that God gives us. So it's God from the beginning. Right. Yeah. So so we believe that salvation is by grace alone through a faith he gives us and not conditioned upon any work of obedience we do, which I think that we would include baptism. Now, I've seen defenders of baptismal regeneration object to this in one of two ways. Some claim that baptism isn't the kind of work apart from which we're saved, um, that somehow the works apart from which we're saved are specifically the commands of the Mosaic Law. 
Others, like Bruce Reeves, I think, um, that you debated, they believe that salvation apart from works just means that we can't, by virtue of being sinless, earn our salvation, but that salvation still requires both our faith and our, our obedience. Uh, how would you respond to these views, and, and why don't they do any damage to this, this foundation that we've, that we've uh, set up? Well, salvation does require faith and obedience, but obedience is a response to faith. Hmm. That's the argument that John, that, that James makes in James chapter two, that our obedience is always a response to faith. So somebody who is disobedient, uh, does most likely not possess a saving faith. So, but th- the question is justification. When we use the term saved, what are we talking about? Are we talking about our, the whole of our Christian life? Are we talking about justification? Really, we need to go back if we're going to, have this discussion, and we need to be precise with our language, and we need to talk about regeneration and justification, because regeneration is the place at which new life begins. Hmm. That's a work of the Spirit. Clearly put, John chapter 3, it's a work of the Spirit. Yeah. Being born again is a work of the Spirit. Secondly, justification is something that is uh, brought about by the instrument of faith. It's brought about by a response to regeneration through an understanding of the gospel. So it's something that's humanly expressed, but it's something that has to be enabled by God. In other words, human faith is, uh, is, it, we're given the gift of seeing, if I can use that type of analogy. For the first time, we see what we previously could not see, and because we see it, we embrace it in belief. And that becomes the means in which God has chosen to justify us, which means make us righteous. So if we're going to talk about how somebody is saved, I think we need to be precise and, and determine, are we talking about regeneration? Are we talking about justification? Uh, now, because regeneration precedes justification uh, in a, a, an orderly sense or in a logical order, and, and I'm not saying that uh, that it precedes justification in a chronological sense. I'm saying that from the human standpoint, both regeneration and justification and faith and repentance all happen and appear to happen at a moment in time. But one is the basis for the other. And there's a logical order that God reveals to us in his scripture. So I think if we're going to be precise, once again, we need to, we need to really talk about either regeneration or justification. What is the point of regeneration? What is the point of justification? And what does the Bible say are the means of bringing those about? Well, regeneration, we're completely passive. God regenerates us by his spirit, brings us to life, spiritually resurrects us, and uses these analogies. Sure. Uh, uses the analogy of birth. So, I mean, it's like, it's like being born in, in, in the natural sense. You didn't choose where you were going to be born. You didn't pick the day. You didn't even pick who your parents were going to be. That's the analogy that God uses when he refers to the new birth. It's something that is brought about by the spirit of God. Uh, so I, I think therein lies the confusion. When we're talking about justification, or we're talking about salvation, or we're talking about works, what are we talking? Are we talking about works as a means of justification? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that faith is the means that God uses for justification, not works. And everything that's, that's not faith is antithetical to faith is considered works, whether it's the law. But even if you wanted to say, well, that's just speaking of the works of the Mosaic economy, fine. It doesn't take away from the fact that there are positive statements in Scripture that talk about us being justified by faith. Hmm. So you can reclaim.
classify or redefine or categorize works any way you want. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're still justified by faith and by faith alone. Yeah. And, and that's, I, that's really the crux of the issue. Right. And, and you know, another analogy I think that is relevant here is, is being raised again from spiritual death. Um, you know, when, when, when Jesus told Lazarus to rise, Lazarus didn't have an option to choose or not to choose to rise. I mean, it's something that God causes in us. A, a dead man can't raise himself from the dead. That's right. Yeah. And, and as far as works proceeding from faith as opposed to from a justifying faith rather than being the cause of it, um, you know, I like the analogy of, uh, tr- trees bearing fruit, which is another analogy that's given to us in scripture. You know, I often put it this way. I say a tree isn't an apple tree because it bears apples. A tree bears apples because it's an apple tree. That's right. Yeah. So well, one is the, 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 the grounds or the basis for the other. Yes. Yeah. I agree. And faith is the, the basis. Or the grounds for justification. And it's a faith that he himself, that God himself gives us. Right, but it's still, we need to be careful. It's still a belief and I'm still required to believe in the gospel. So I'm not passive in faith. I'm actually very active. I'm believing something that is in front of me. And it's actually my faith that it's my belief that embraces Jesus. Uh, but it's quite, it's something that's now consistent with my nature. So unlike regeneration, regeneration is something that's passive. I, I'm completely passive. There was nothing, I didn't play any role in it. Uh, but yet the Bible tells me that I'm required to believe that it's not just a matter of God giving me something and say, okay, you have it and now, now you can be justified. No, it's something that God gives me the ability to do. And then as I respond to the gospel in faith, having been given the ability, now I'm justified. I understand. Yeah. If you want more, I'll tell you what, the, the thing that really opened up my eyes in that particular department was the book by John Murray called, um, the, um, <laughs> well, it's actually on my website. If you look under recommended reading, it's on my website at unchainedradio.com. Okay. And, I, and I'll include a link to that in my show notes so that okay. people have access to that. Now, one thing that, uh, I'm often accused of when I approach the baptism text that we're about to look at is, is I'm accused of twisting these passages of reading my presupposed meaning into them rather than letting them speak for themselves. Do you think that this is a fair characterization of what you and I are trying to do? Well, actually I do. And here's why, because all of us have our presuppositions, no matter who you are or what you believe, you come to life and you come to God's word with presuppositions. The question is, and this is the real issue. Does your presupposition, uh, that, that really becomes the basis for your interpretation, does it allow you to harmonize the whole of scripture? Hmm. Because if I have a presupposition that, that, uh, you know, we're saved, uh, passively through regeneration, therefore, um, baptism couldn't possibly be the means in which brings about my salvation. That's a presupposition. Now, somebody else that disagrees with me says, no, I have a presupposition that says that baptism actually is where salvation begins. Okay, well, let's take those two presuppositions and let's compare them to Scripture and see which one is the biblical presupposition. Mm. So we all come, and it's impossible for anybody to come to the Bible without a particular presupposition about any given topic. Uh, we're not blank slates. And so, but we need to constantly be comparing Scripture with Scripture in our interpretation to make sure that our interpretation at the end of the day, which is related to our presupposition, uh, harmonizes the whole of Scripture. Right. Because if it doesn't, if, if, 
if I'm harmonizing 80%, but I got this 20% out over there that just doesn't fit, then that's a good indication that there's a problem. Right. And, you know, the reality, I think, is that uh, proponents of baptismal regeneration, they do exactly the same thing, just with different passages. And we're going to look at one of those at the end of this interview, but um, it, it, they're, quote-unquote, twisting Scripture as well to fit their presuppositions. And like you say, the question is, whose interpretation of these texts, based on other presuppositions, uh, makes sense and harmonize the whole of Scripture, since Scripture won't contradict itself because it's the God-breathed uh, words of God himself, so... And I don't. I don't like to. I, I wouldn't agree that I'm twisting scripture. I, I don't like to shoehorn scripture or try to make it fit in some way that it was never intended to be understood in its original sense. Um, and so, I try to stay away from that. I try to let the the passage speak for itself as much as possible. Yes. No. I agree. That's why I said quote twists. <laughs> uh, so. With all that in mind, let me play the devil's advocate and, and challenge you with uh, what I think are some of the passages that maybe a couple of my listeners might be chomping at the bit to hear. Um, and I want to begin with Acts 2, verses 37 and 38, because you hear this over and over and over again, uh, where Luke records this on the day of Pentecost. He writes, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to shrink that down, what Peter's just said was, Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Doesn't this seem to suggest that baptism results in the forgiveness of sins, assuming, of course, that it's done in genuine faith? Well, at first glance, somebody could suppose that, I guess, or somebody could uh, you know, interpret it that way. Um, but that's not the way that I read the passage. And, and, and I think that sometimes we need to, uh, this is where a little bit uh, of a deeper understanding of language comes into play. Hmm. If you look at verse 38, uh, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So there you have a classic example of, I mean, you have a classic example of the word for having a very specific meaning. Okay. Uh, and the word for in this, in this case, uh, means because of. For example, if I said, Jesse James is wanted for bank robbery. Yeah. Um, what is that? What am I communicating? I'm communicating that bank robbery is actually something that took place before Jesse James was wanted. Right. right? Or it's because of. And, and that's what we have here. The word for can be translated because of. In fact, there's a passage, and I think it's in Matthew 11. Let me just take a quick look here. Sure. Um, okay, here it is right here. It's actually in Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you have the same language. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another passage uh which is a parallel passage. It says in Luke 3, 3, And he went up into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so the baptism of repentance. What is the baptism of repentance? If it just said baptism, the Church of Christ would say, oh, you see here, it's a baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. Hmm. No, it's a baptism of repentance. In other words, repentance... It, or the act of baptism is included as part of the category of repentance. Hmm. 
So when I when John was out there preaching, and John was preaching about the one who is coming, uh, make straight the way, right? And he's preaching about the coming Messiah. He was calling people to repent and be baptized. Right. Now, here, part of their repentance is coming forth and taking a bath. In other words, you guys over there standing on the bank, you need to get down here in the water and ask God to forgive you. All right? So, in other words, for them to get off the bank, that was for them to take one step into the water, that was already a sign of repentance. It was already a sign that they were having a change of heart. Yeah. Why? Because they had been forgiven of their sins. There's another passage, um, and this is where it pays to have your old marked-up handy Bible, which <laughs> I have to work with me today. Uh, there's a couple of other passages that use the same type of language. Uh, so the other thing that's interesting is if you continue reading, let's go back to Acts um, 2.38. If you continue reading in the book of Acts, what you're going to find is some more information about uh, the people that were getting baptized. It says uh, down in, um, let me see here, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Hmm. Okay, so there's, basically he's saying the promise that I'm preaching to you, the promise that I'm calling you to repent and believe and embrace, this promise is for you your children, and everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Right. So there's another prerequisite. In other words, if what I said is correct about regeneration and about the gift of faith and about believing and embracing the the gospel for justification, then this makes perfect sense. Because the promise is only for people who the Lord God is calling to himself. You go back and read John chapter 6, Jesus says essentially the same thing. That 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 God is the one that's drawing men to Him, and whoever is drawn to Him will be raised up on the last day. Now there were some people that didn't like that, and that's John six sixty six. It says that uh, many of His belie- many believers that day, or many of His disciples actually is the term that's used, uh, no longer followed Him because of what He said. That's right. So we need to we need to come to Scripture and say, be willing to change our minds based on what we read. Yeah, and, and, and there in John 6, you know, I, I intend to do a, a, a episode on this in the future, but I just want to point out that where it says that everyone, who, or no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him, that word is a very important word. Because I've heard a lot of people say that when, when God, that God is calling everybody, that God is drawing everybody. Um, and it's up to the individuals to choose whether or not to submit to that drawing. And yet I think that as you and I both know, that Greek word for draw there has a very specific meaning. It's used of drawing a sword from a sheath or, a, or, or outside of scripture. It's even used to refer to drawing a bowstring back. This is a forceful movement of, of one thing from one place to another. It's not just sort of a, a, a general call to everybody. Right. Um, and we, we would agree, I'm sure, that uh, there is a general call that goes out to all those who hear. Yes. Uh, and that's what Jesus says that many are called, but few are chosen. That's right. Yeah. Now, so in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, it says this. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so there's the order. They received his word, they were baptized, they were added to the church. Yep. So how are you going to receive the word if you're still in the flesh when it says in Romans chapter 8 that you can't please God if you're in the flesh? Yeah. So, I mean, you just got to compare Scripture with Scripture, and you see here that their position doesn't fly. 
So now, how about a similar passage when Paul recounts his conversion before the Jews in Acts twenty two sixteen? He he re- records Ananias as having said, "Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name." Uh, and similarly, I think the author of Hebrews urges us in uh, chapter ten verse twenty two, "Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." Um, I, I agree with what you're saying about Acts two thirty eight, but how, what do you make of these two passages? Okay, when we talk about the word baptism or the doctrine of baptism, there's something else that's very important. We have to realize that the word baptism is used in different senses. Okay, so. Primarily, the passages that we're going to look at, sometimes you have um, baptism used in reference to the work of the Spirit. In other words, when somebody is 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 baptized, it means the word t- means to be immersed. And when somebody is uh, given the gift of the Spirit, they are immersed or baptized with or in the Spirit. Hmm. So some passages that we're going to look at will refer to the work of the Spirit exclusively. Other passages are going to either refer to the act of baptism, like we just saw here in Acts chapter 2.38, the actual act of water baptism, uh, and other passages are going to be in reference to what's called the sign and the thing signified. So in other words, the sign of, 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 of having our hearts sprinkled clean, as you just quoted in Hebrews, hmm. sign is being water baptized, having your body washed. But having your body washed actually points to a spiritual reality. So in theology, it's called the sign and the thing signified. Right. So, for example, you have um, the rainbow. God says, okay, the rainbow will be the sign. The thing that the rainbow signifies will be that I will never flood the earth again with water. So there you have the sign and the thing signified. Right. The sign and the thing signified in Scripture are often so closely related to one another that they can be spoken of in a manner that interchanges the terminology. Let me give you an example. Okay. If uh, if I become a Christian, and a week after I become a Christian, uh, and I've seen this happen actually before, a week after I become a Christian, I, I, I become baptized. I get baptized, right? So 50 years passes by, and somebody asks this old man, he says, hey, how long have you been a Christian? He says, I was baptized on December 3rd, 1955. Well, did he ask him when he got baptized? <laughs> no. Or did he ask him when he became a Christian? Right. In that man's thinking, the two are so closely related that they can be spoken of interchangeably. This is what we find with the authors of Scripture. This is what we find in the New Testament, that the sign and the thing signified are so closely related that they can be spoken of interchangeably without anybody raising their eyebrows. Why? Because if you take a look at first century Rome, if somebody was going to acknowledge Christ, they were basically opposing Caesar. They were opposing Caesar, and they were opposing everything that their immediate culture stood for. Hmm. So for them to not only say, well, I believe in Christ, and now I'm going to jump in the Jordan River with the disciples of Jesus, and they're going to dunk me under the water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a pretty bold act. Yeah. So people aren't going to be doing that unless they're actually saved. Why? Because it could cost them their lives. In fact, we see in the book of Acts that it did cost them their lives. Yeah. 
So the, the, the sign and the thing signified are so closely related that uh, what you're going to find in Scripture is they're af- actually often spoken of interchangeably. Acts 22.16 is just, is just such a case. That um, in the mind of Ananias, it's, it's unthinkable that somebody would actually be baptized and not have their sins washed away. And so what does he do? He says to Paul, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So that was, a, that was seen as a public act of repentance. Hmm. It, was a, it was one way in which we called upon his name. And so I would say that this is a classic example. Ananias doesn't actually theologically think that by Paul crawling in a pool of water, his sins are going to be washed away. Right. It's just silly. That would take away the significance of what baptism is. It would, it would turn the, it would turn the sign into the thing that it was supposed to signify. Yeah. Which is forgiveness of sins. And so I would say that this is a classic example. So the passages that we're going to look at are going to fit into one of these three categories. They're either going to be passages that speak of the, th- the sign and thing signified so closely related that they're used interchangeably, or for the most part, they're going to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit, not even relating to water baptism. Right. Okay. Well, so let's start talking about some more of those. Uh, another common verse that I hear brought up is John 3, 5, which is oftentimes emphatically spoken of as proof of their view. Um, as you know, Jesus says to Nicodemus in this passage, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then this is often cited in conjunction with Titus 3, 5, which reads, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So, so what they'll do is they'll say that these two passages line up with one another um, and together teach that to be saved, we must not just be renewed by the Holy Spirit or born of spirit, but that we must also be born of water by the washing of regeneration. Is that what these passages are teaching? The washing of regeneration is the work of the Spirit. Hmm. So read the passage again, Titus 2.13. Uh, Titus 3.5, I think. is. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. right. Uh, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according okay. to his... What about baptism? Is that a deed that we've done in righteousness? <laughs> yes. Right, exactly. So there, it, that just refuted their position and actually gives us more insight into what Jesus is talking about when he encounters this man named Nicodemus. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the washing of regeneration. He's talking about being washed with the water, but not the water of baptism, but this symbol, this sign of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Now, I used to have a different position on this passage. I used to say that this is speaking of natural birth and then physical, or physical birth and then spiritual birth. That's what I used to think as well. But I've since changed my view, and, and I don't think that that's, that's what he's talking about at all. I think that that illusion of water is actually something that comes back from, uh, uh, that's, that's a prophecy that goes back to, if, if you take a look, for example, at Ezekiel 36, 25, it says, this is speaking of the new covenant. This is a prophecy about the new covenant. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statute, statutes and be careful to obey my, my rules. Right. So we have a passage. Now, now, what's taking place back in John 3? Now, in John 3, what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at, at Nicodemus and says, you know what? You're a teacher of God's word, in so many words. You're a teacher of the law. You don't understand this? 
How could that, how could it be, Nicodemus, that you don't understand this? Nicodemus says to him in verse 9 of John 3, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? So right there, that tells me that there was something in the word of God revealed that would give him an indication of what he was talking about, that he should be familiar with. Right. Well, guess what? There's no indication of water baptism in the Old Testament. It doesn't exist. I mean, you would have ceremonial washings, but that's a far cry from water baptism as we know it, as revealed in the New Testament. Mm. And, and in the same chapter, Ezekiel 36, you have this comparison between being washed and the work of the Spirit. I will place my Spirit within you. And therefore, Jesus comes in verse 5 and says, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right. So so being born of water, then, is is a metaphor for being cleansed of sin, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, not not something so, that happens in water baptism. Absolutely. In fact, he says this. He says something interesting here that's often overlooked. He says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you're telling me, Mr. Church of Christ, water baptism guy, if you're telling me that water baptism is the, the means in which new birth comes about, what are you being baptized into? Because prior to the new birth, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Hmm. You, you, how are you going to place your faith? How are you going to submit yourself to something that's invisible to you because you can't see it? You have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Yeah. It's very plain. Yeah, I agree. And then just as a side note, that word again, my understanding is that in the original Greek, that can actually mean from above, and in fact might be used that way more often than the word again. Um, I think that makes perfect sense of what he goes on to say when he speaks of being born of water and the Spirit. He's saying you must be born from above by the Spirit who will cleanse you of your sin uh, to even see the kingdom of God. That's right. I would agree. Okay. Well, so what about uh, these passages were, were brought up often in your debate with Bruce Reeves, and I hear them often. Romans 6, 3 to 4, which says all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Galatians three twenty seven says all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says by one spirit we were all baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit. Do these passages speak of water baptism? No. Uh, the first two speak of the parallel between the sign and the thing signified. Let me, let me show you why I believe that. Okay. If you look, for example, at Romans chapter six, let's look at the first one. Romans six, it says, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So this is something that you don't hear too much talk about. Hmm baptized into his death if you if you go down uh, let's read verse four so we can keep the the continuity here sure we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might might walk in newness of life for if we've been united with him in death in, in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with uh, to be brought to nothing. Okay, so this is the question I always ask. Wait a minute. It says our old self was crucified. 
Is, it, is that literal? I mean, is, are we literally crucified with Christ? No. No. It's, it's talking spiritual language. It's talking about the reality of being united to Christ uh, through salvation. Hmm. It's, it's, it's talking about being buried with him, being immersed into his death, uh, and it's talking about newness of, newness of life in verse 4. So if, verse 5, for if we have been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, how are we united with him in death? Well, through faith. Right. Through faith, we die to ourselves, right? And we begin to live to Christ. The old man, where does the old man stop and the new man begin? Well, if, from a technical standpoint, the new man begins at the the new birth, just like the physical analogy of of new birth. Sure. So I would say no that this isn't talking about this is talking about the the sign and the thing the thing signified being so closely related that the language is used to, to denote both. Okay. And that's why I think in water baptism, the mode is to go down into the water. We see this in Scripture that Jesus comes up out of the water. Jesus goes down into the water. Why? Because just the very act of baptism, it symbolizes by way of a picture, death and resurrection. Right. So that's the whole point. The whole point is not that, I mean, there's not a drop of water that's mentioned in this passage. Sure. It doesn't say water anywhere. It's completely dry. <laughs> yeah, right. If you can put it that way. So are you saying that the baptism here referred to is actually not water baptism or Holy Spirit baptism, but is being immersed metaphorically into the death of Christ? It's talking about union with Christ. Right. It's not talking about, uh, it's, it's talking about the self. It's talking about that union with Christ that comes about through the reality that baptism is intended to point to. Yes. Which is the washing away of sins through regeneration and through justification. And would you say that this is the case with Galatians 3.27 as well? Absolutely. Uh, let's take a look at that passage. The reality is that to put on Christ, that's a metaphor for uh, imputed righteousness. Mm. And so how do you put on imputed righteousness? Well, Romans 4 tells us about that. You put it on through faith. Well, how is that faith expressed in everyday life? Well, somebody is baptized upon faith. In fact, it was... It's not a common practice now, but in during the time that the Bible was written, somebody would respond to the gospel and then be baptized, and very little time would pass hmm. between the two events. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, the whole passage, or not even the passage, but the whole chapter is talking about faith. Hmm. It's talking about being children of Abraham by faith, the same faith that Abraham possessed. Right. So if you look at verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Hmm. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian or a tutor, as some translations say. For in Christ there, for in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor, Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Well, we're Abraham's offspring by faith. So this is tying, once again, the thing signified so closely to the event that the two are being spoken of interchangeably. I can speak about putting on Christ through faith in baptism. Why? Because it's an act of faith and because it really represents the spiritual reality that that Paul's speaking of here. Hmm. Yeah, I would also point out that we don't literally put on a coat you know, of Christ, uh, being clothed with Christ is something that, uh, you know, it means that, that we are immersed into the blood of Christ. Um, and that, and that, that blood is what God sees and, and justifies us. And, and so it, baptism into Christ here would seem to me to be immersion into Christ. And in fact, I would, I would go so far as to say that, as you pointed out, the, the, this whole context here is about faith. And so it would seem really awkward to introduce without any lead in or any specificity, spe- specifying water, uh, bap- water baptism. It would just seem really awkward to me. Um, so now what about 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen? That's speaking of the work of the Spirit. So, once again, baptism can exclusively be speaking of just being baptized by the Spirit of God. Hmm. So, let's, let, me, let me pull that one up. For in one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. I mean, to me, it's, it's just obvious on the basic reading of that one verse. Right. In one Spirit, we are all baptized. It doesn't say in one pool of water we are all baptized into one body. Sure. It's talking about the work of the Spirit. In fact, the whole chapter, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's talking about the work of the Spirit. It's talking about the work of the Spirit, uniting the body, that the body function as a body. That's the analogy that's given, that the Holy Spirit gives out gifts as he wills. The whole passage is speaking of the work of the Spirit. Hmm. So it's it's completely within the continuity and context of the, the chapter to understand it as the work of the Spirit, let alone just the clear language of the passage. Yeah, and you know, I, I find something interesting. He says that we were made to drink of one spirit in this passage, in this very verse, in fact. And in John 7, uh, verse 37, Jesus says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the spirit was not given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you know, given that drink of the spirit language, it seems very clear that what's being spoken of here is, is baptism into the Holy Spirit. That's right. I mean, that's, that's the most obvious option. If you reject that, then what you're going to have to say is that um, this drinking of the Spirit is actually what happens when you're you're held under the water too long and you you swallow <laughs> water. That's right. That's right. Um, and and actually, this leads us into what I think is probably the most powerful proof. I I, I repeatedly point to this um, in, in Acts chapter ten, uh, and I'm sure that you're familiar with this. Cornelius uh, and his household, who was who was a Gentile God fearer. Um, he is listening to uh, Peter's message, and the Holy Spirit falls upon him. And Paul uh, and Peter tells us that that was uh, in the next chapter. He tells us that that was baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, as you and I just saw, First Corinthians twelve is speaking of the Holy Spirit inside us, uniting us into one body, manifesting Himself through spiritual gifts, including tongues. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts ten, following which. They are baptized in water. I mean, would, do, you, do you see any way around understanding that Cornelius was saved before he was baptized in water? Absolutely not. I mean, it, it's crystal clear, and it, and it causes a big problem. And see, the, here's, here's the, the problem. 
we are often put on the defense, right? And so we're, we're defending all these passages. We're trying to explain what this passage means and what that passage means. Mm. Uh, Acts chapter 10 turns this whole thing on its head. Right. Because, I mean, after you, there's no way, no way, no possible explanation. And I've, I've heard people try to understand it and explain it. You just can't do it. The Holy Spirit falls upon him prior to his water baptism. Right. So he's a perfect example. God reveals to us a perfect example of the order of salvation. Yes. And, you know, the, the most common, I think, uh, objection I've heard is that the Holy Spirit was just um, especially empowering them. It wasn't a sal- a sal- uh, what's the word? It wasn't a work that saved them. It wasn't saving. But First Corinthians 12 very clearly says that uh, that the Holy Spirit who manifests himself in this way unites us into the one body of Christ. And I, I, I point people to other passages as well. I'll include these in the show notes where, where the Holy Spirit is described as testifying within us that we're sons of God. Uh, he, he's called a promise that, that we um, will be redeemed and resurrected. There's, there's no possible way in the new covenant anyway, that this operation of the Holy Spirit could be viewed as anything other than the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. I would agree 100%. Yeah. Well, let me just look at one last one. Um, in 1 Peter 3.21, this is probably the, seemingly the most explicit. Um, it says, baptism now saves you. <laughs> uh, it seems very explicit. Is this passage saying that the act of water baptism is what saves us? Well, it certainly seems to indicate that. Mm. Uh, but once again, I think this is a classic example of the thing signified, um, the thing that signified being interchanged with the sign. And so Peter doesn't mean for any, Peter understood. I mean, Peter knew that there were false teachers. I mean, he rebuked, uh, what was that guy's name in the book of Acts? Simon? Hmm. Uh, because he wanted, he was baptized, right? But he wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. If I've got my name correct, I think it was Simon. It was Simon, Simon. yeah. So uh, Peter understood that it wasn't water baptism that saves you. Uh, but Christian baptism is the baptism that accompanies salvation. Hmm. Because it points to the reality of being saved by grace, grace through the resurrection of, uh, through the resurrection of Christ. In fact, Peter goes on to clarify in this verse that he does not mean simply getting a bath. Hmm. Because he qualifies, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it, I'm not talking about washing your body. Yeah. I'm talking about something within you, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's faith in Christ is what Peter's talking about here. He's not yeah. talking about taking a bath. That's right. So I think, I think it's, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I would agree. It's almost as if Peter is anticipating that when he uses the word baptism, the reader is going to immediately think water baptism. And he says, no, I'm not talking about the removal of the filth from the flesh. I'm talking about the answer of a good conscience toward God expressed, uh, expressed in baptism, which, which caused us to want to be baptized in the, in, to begin with. That's right. Yeah. I agree. Okay, so this has been really good. Um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to just share a, a parting message with my listeners. Um, what what does this question really boil down to, and and how will our answer to it affect our life and our walk with Christ? Well, I, I think that that that's a great uh, a great point or a great question. We really need to have a a good working understanding of 
how we're saved and who does what in salvation. And really, that's that's Christianity 101. I mean, you're going to pick that up just from reading your Bible and studying your Bible. The Bible calls us to defend the faith. The Bible tells us that there's going to be other Jesuses, other Gospels, and that uh, this is going to be an attack uh, that's a spiritual attack that's going to come that opposes the Gospel and, and, and opposes uh, just the simplicity that's in Christ and the simplicity of a God who saves us apart from ourselves. And so we need to have, first of all, a good understanding of, of who does what in salvation, how we get saved, the work of God in salvation. And then secondly, we need to have uh, the ability to articulate those th- those doctrines and those passages to people when they ask us. Because God wants to use us. God wants to use us as an instrument to bring truth and light to people who are in darkness. Mm. So really it comes down to to one question. Are you saved by grace? What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Mm. If you tell me that there's anything that I have to do that's going to merit God's favor, then we're no longer talking about grace. Right. It's it just it, it's outside of the definition. So we need to have a clear understanding of what it means to be saved by grace. We need to have a clear understanding of what it means uh, to to be in Christ and the role of baptism in the life of the believer. So I, I think if there's anything I can leave your listening audience, it would be that. Great. So now, how can my listeners get plugged into The Narrow Mind and learn more about you? Well, the easiest way is to uh, go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. So you can just do a search on iTunes for The Narrow Mind Podcast. And that way, every time you, uh, or every time we put out a new show, it'll, it'll get delivered to you automatically. Second way is to uh, become one of my friends on Facebook. So my name is Gene Cook Jr. You can find me on Facebook. And just send me a friend request, and I'll add you. And that way, you can uh, be up to date on issues uh, related to the radio show, and actually stuff that's going on in my own life. If that probably wouldn't be of interest to most people, but <laughs> it's kind of funny. And uh, the third way is to go to our website, UnchainedRadio.com. And if you subscribe uh, with a free user account, you'll have access now to the entire archive. And we have uh, close to 500 MP3s there that. Uh, are archived for your listening pleasure. Great. All right, well, thanks so much for joining me today, Gene. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. I know that there are still some objections that need addressing and some questions to answer, and I'll get to those in future episodes. And until then, I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Podcast.